0: Logically, or arbitrarily or swiftly, or in brief bursts of lyric interrupted by dialogue. <coughs> in today's eleventh hour, Carol Spindell discussed the art of juxtaposition and the ways in which arrangement matters. Carol Spindell is the author of two books of literary nonfiction: In the Shadow of the Sacred Grove, a New York Times notable book, and dancing <coughs> at halftime. Her articles, essays, and award-winning public radio commentaries have appeared in many places, and she teaches at the
1: University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. Please welcome Carol Spindell. All right. Thank you so much, and thank you all for coming this morning. And it's exciting to give the first 11th hour of the summer. I feel sort of honored. Um, can you hear me? Is, that, is our AV thing all good? Can you, is it going to get darker, Carol, so they can read the print? Is that, is it hard to read? Is it light out there? Yeah, I think that might, they might actually need to read things. And, um, it's probably a way to make that easier. Okay, so let me just start by explaining the idea of the spark of juxtaposition. Um, oh, yeah, how's that? Is that much better? Thank you. Okay, thanks so much. Um, This is a quote from Max Ernst. Creativity is that marvelous capacity to grasp mutually distinct realities and draw a spark from their juxtaposition. Um, And uh, so how could we do that in our writing? And the more I I first talked about juxtaposition two years ago uh, here at the Summer Festival, and since then I've continued to think about it and I've continued to use it um, as an assignment in my teaching and the more I think about it the more ways I see that it's really important and the more roles I see that it plays in literary writing so I'm still really interested <coughs> with this notion of the power of juxtaposition and being aware and when you use it um, how you can you know, use it the way you want intentionally um, so juxtaposition is used in all kinds of things we often don't think about it It's used in comedy, of course, because in your mind you're juxtaposing what the comic is saying with something else, what's expected, and it's that juxtaposition that often creates the humor. It's used in art. Images, colors, and forms are juxtaposed to create a more complex meaning. It's used, of course, in film and editing and and jumping from one thing to another, putting two things next to each other through an elegant edit, is, of course, really at the really heart of of cinema. Um, It's used in poetry, language, and imagery are juxtaposed. And I think it's, it's wonderful in all these forms and many others because it creates an excitement from the unexpected and the unpredictable. And it also creates the subtle pleasure for the reader or the viewer of an unspoken implication. And if we harness that power of juxtaposition and we don't create a transition between the two things that are being juxtaposed, one is unspoken or the two are there but we don't put a transition between them and we leave a negative uh, space, then ideally, as Max Maxim said, a spark flies up from the way that the two sit near each other. Um, So what is juxtaposition? Placing two ideas, words, or pictures side by side so that their closeness creates a new, often ironic, meaning. Or placing things next to each other to show a relationship. They might seem very remote, they might seem very different, but the writer sees a connection. And of course, that's what writers do, that's what we do, we draw connections, that's our role. And so we see those two things, we see a connection between them that perhaps other people don't see, our society doesn't see, and so we place them next to each other to demonstrate that connection to the reader. So, of course, more places you'll start seeing juxtaposition if you start looking for it in collage and montage and found poetry. In film, if you think about the godfather at the end, the juxtaposition of the christening scene and the murders, um, it's often used in propaganda where two things are placed side by side that the propagandist wants us to make a connection between and maybe there really isn't a connection. And maybe the propagandist doesn't want to take responsibility for saying there's a connection, but they just keep placing them next to each other. And eventually people, using this process of juxtaposition, has a meaning of association, will in their minds start creating that connection. And we saw that, of course, very, very powerfully um, in the run-up to the Iraq wars, when we kept hearing, you know, 9-11, Iraq, 9-11, Iraq. And those two things... Um, you know, eventually an association was created by their, by their proximity. Uh, this is an art piece by Barbara Kruger, who uses a lot of text in her art and comments on our society. And of course, what she's juxtaposing are her words, the things she wants to say, with the image of the American flag. If she just put those words out there and she didn't juxtapose that symbol that we recognize, we wouldn't get the full meaning. Uh, that she intends of her piece. Uh, this is from a novel, juxtaposition within a chapter of a novel, a novel by uh, my co-Urbanaite Amy Hassinger, um, where the first paragraph is a description of a young girl just thinking about her sexuality, kind of first thinking about the possibility of being a sexual being. And then you see the negative space, and then you see Leo arrive promptly at three on Monday afternoon. Now we don't know who Leo is, but what do we know? We know that he's somehow going to play a role in her sexual awakening, don't we? We know that he's somehow connected to to this process. So, um, And we know that because of juxtaposition. Um, here's a nonfiction example from Dr. Don, a piece that my class is reading um, and talking about. <clears throat> in the first paragraph is... About Don, the pharmacist in a rural area in Colorado. And then after that space, we go to um, the history of the town and the fact that it was founded as a utopian community with socialist principles and of course Peter Hustler is drawing a little connection there and through juxtaposition without saying so he's commenting on the way Don runs his pharmacy and the way the town was fun- was founded yeah time to move on okay i don't want to rush you everybody have time to read it? Okay. Um, so juxtaposition requires negative space. You saw the negative space in those two examples. If you fill that negative space up with a transition, you take away the power, and it doesn't leave space for that spark, which is something that really happens in the, sorry, in the reader's mind. You know, So much of, of reading, it's a circle, and the writer only completes part of it. And we have to remember that reading is active. And we have to leave that space um, for our reader to be active and to to fill that space themselves. And that's part of the pleasure of reading and make those connections and have that spark go up. So um, I think both those examples, you do get the spark when you read. So I'm going to propose to you that you could write a literary essay or creative nonfiction piece that would really take this juxtaposition idea kind of to an extreme and, and really be based around it. Um, so I think it's a great, it's a fun piece to write, um, and I think it really makes you more aware once you've tried it. Then after that, you can sort of move on to starting to see more subtle ways that you could use juxtaposition in your work. This piece is not subtle. It uses it as the um, as the sort of defining structural uh, template of the, of the essay. So it juxtaposes two disparate narratives, and if all goes well, creates meaning out of the overlaps, contrasts, and spaces between the two. And of course, ideally, they also comment on each other in an interesting way. So there's a commentary going on that's you know, between the lines for the reader to enjoy. So it's gonna look sort of like this. Like mini songs, it's gonna have an A part and a B part. Or one part could be longer, one part could be shorter. They don't have to be equal. So if you are up for the juxtaposition challenge, get out your pens and paper. And we will try it. Okay, so we're going to make it easy to get started. We're going to start with lists of five. I'm a great believer in lists of five. I have an essay coming out, I guess it's going to come out this fall, in an anthology on teaching about lists of five. Um, So I always try to go for five things on my list, but hey, that's just a goal. If you get three things on your list, that's great. If you get one thing on your list, that's a start. If you get ten things on your list, that's fine too, that's great. So, you're going to make a list. um, And the first list that we're going to make is five things that you really know about. Five things you know about so well you could explain to somebody. Um, So, I want you to think about those. And I want you to be very specific. We're not talking astronomy necessarily, that's too general. We're talking, you know, how to roll out pie crust or, um, you know, anything doesn't matter. So just to get you started, these are some areas where you might have expertise. Um, And then you want to take those general areas and you want to be more specific. You want to ask yourself, okay, what are my specific sorts of expertises? You might have skills gained through experience. You could explain to someone how to do something, how to make pizza, how to garden in deep shade, whatever. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. So you might have a lot of expertises. Those things could go on your list that you've learned by doing things. You could try, now try to make your list more specific. So if you thought, I have expertise, I know about history. What kind of history? You know, is it the history of quilts? Is it the history of how your town raised the money to renovate the public library? Is it the history of a family, a house, a friendship, history of ancient Egypt, whatever. If it's baking, that's too general. Is it fruit tarts, strawberry shortcake, muffins, gluten-free cookies? It's got to be specific. Okay? So try to make your list specific. So, everybody got a few things on your list? How's the list going? Is it a few things on there? Okay, so of course, this is something you can continue the list. It's there for you. You know, you might get a good idea as you're walking across campus or um, eating lunch or whatever, taking a shower. Go and add it to your list. So, keep this going um, for the next few days if you're going to do the juxtaposition challenge and keep adding to it. Okay. Are you having trouble hearing? Well, I was thinking maybe, yeah. maybe yeah. Do you have a question? A little louder or okay. slower or something. Okay, sorry. Okay, so we're going to move on from the first list now, and we're going to make a second list. And this list is going to be five stories that you would really like to tell. They could be stories that have happened to you. They could be stories that have happened to someone else. Um, do you hurt? Okay, so now, um, if all has gone well, you have two lists. And one is a more informational-based list. It's sort of a knowledge-based list, things you know how to do, things you know about, things you could explain. Um, And the other is a more narrative-based list, stories that you care about. Um, So now we're going to look for connections between the two lists. So do you see any connections between list one and list two? Do you see items on list one that might juxtapose in an interesting way with something on list two, a story on list two, or vice versa? So, hard question to answer, because you don't really know what you're going to do with them. I understand. But before I explain what you're going to do with them, I kind of want you to just look for connections, because the the person who's going to see those connections is you. Nobody else is going to see them. That is the writer's job, to make connections. And we we connect up things that often, otherwise, people don't otherwise see connections between. So, um, so, So if there are connections there, You know, you're the one who's going to know about them. So even if you can't logically explain them to somebody, if you feel a connection, then it might work for a juxtaposition essay. Okay, so just to give you some examples, I give this assignment every um, year, at least once a year, to my students at the University of Illinois. And they come up with kind of amazing things. Um, These are just a few examples of their many, many juxtaposition essays, some of which are brilliant. So one girl who was in international relations juxtaposed some theory of why countries that she had learned in her class, of why countries with territorial disputes go to war, why there just is a line, and after it's crossed, war is kind of inevitable. And her semester with a difficult roommate who happened to be from another country also. Um, Another student juxtaposed the history of chess, which was something he was very interested in, Uh, with an account of a very complicated friendship that often seemed like, you know, moving forwards and back and moving in different directions the way you do on on the chessboard. Um, Another student juxtaposed how difficult it is to harvest, a good harvest from a vegetable garden in the summer in Illinois with a story about what she felt, uh, you know, a time when it was difficult to establish a relationship with her own mother. So she juxtaposed those two stories. Um, Another student juxtaposed a a psychological theory of relationships that she had learned in her psychology class, which said that you were most likely to fall in love with someone who was close by. Uh, Physical proximity was like a key thing. And then she juxtaposed that... um, with falling in love with a guy that she had thought was a friend but whom she was serving on a committee with and spending a lot of time working with. So um, another student of mine juxtaposed directions on how to make squash soup with a story of getting along with a brother who he thought was very hard to get along with and who happened to be a professional chef. Um, Another student of mine served as a... um, a research assistant on a study of red-winged blackbirds. So he, this was his, you know, his research job at the university. He knew a lot about the territoriality of red-winged blackbirds and why you know, they have certain territories and their courtship and all this. He could explain all this. And so he juxtaposed that with his own search for love and for a mate, for life, in, in a very lyrical and interesting way, uh, poetic way. Um, Another student of mine wanted to tell the story of her brother's decision to join the Marines, which was obviously quite unsettling for her family, and she juxtaposed it with Wolverine behavior, what Wolverines are like. Um, um, Another student juxtaposed an explanation about the progress of dementia with the story of her grandfather's unsettling decline and how it didn't go in even steps, how it went in strange leaps and collapses. And of course, that one, is there's a much clearer connection. It's very easy to see the connection. Um, And so it goes goes on and on. My students are amazing. I I could tell you a million other amazing things that they've come up with. Um, Obviously, it takes a little time to think of the right two things. Um, But uh, one of my students, I'm I'm teaching a class now at Illinois uh, that I created called First Person Global, where... um, It's for students who've come back from study abroad and they want to write about their experiences. And I gave this assignment to that group. And um, one girl had gone to Ireland, so she juxtaposed how Guinness is made, which there are four essential ingredients, she had been told, at her tour of the Guinness factory, with the four friends that she kind of experienced Ireland with. So that was a lovely juxtaposition. And this was from a student who arrived in the class and was like studying speech pathology and said, I can't do this writing thing. I don't get you know, at all what you're talking about when you talk about narrative. And, um, and at the end of the semester, she, she read this amazing juxtaposition essay, so I thought that was great. Um, so yeah, they find, they find amazing things to juxtapose, and, and we all have these... These things out there, we just have to think of them and think about what goes together in an interesting way to create, like I said, additional meaning beyond the two things. We want the, the parts, the, the whole to be more than the parts. Um, a famous essay that works this way is John McPhee's Marvin Gardens. It juxtaposes the, the story of finding the actual places that the Monopoly Board properties are named for with the story of a competitive Monopoly game. I have to say, it's not my favorite juxtaposition essay, quite frankly. Uh-oh, this is going on the podcast, but uh, <laughs> just thought of that. But anyway, it is a famous one. It is probably the best known one that I know about. Um, but it's a little, the connection is a little obvious to me. Um, but anyway, it's, it's very beautifully written, of course. And if you're a, a monopoly freak, you'll or geek or whatever, you'll like it. Um, it turns out John McPhee is a serious competitive monopoly player. I mean, the, the game that's going on is, is a monopoly that you know, I had never really encountered until I read this essay. So, um, so the possibilities are endless. Um, you could juxtapose, as I've given you the idea of today, a personal story or narrative <laughs> with an explanation of something. You could juxtapose, of course, past and present. And we see this all the time. Um, You see this a lot in travel writing, where someone retraces someone's steps, or goes through the modern city and tells us about the medieval city, or something like that, where they're juxtaposing a modern travelogue, often with history. Um, But of course, it could be politics, or or many, many things about place. You see this a lot in travel writing. you could juxtapose a personal story with a book, a movie, a poem, or a song that connects to you about it. Um, you also see this a lot. You could juxtapose the accepted account, the things the government says, or the things that some authority or institution says about something with a more idiosyncratic personal view. Um, you know, if you had, And you often see this sometimes in personal essays used even maybe just in part of it. I can think of a couple examples where you see the, um, the medical records of someone. You hear the, the doctor's language in the medical record and then that's juxtaposed with the essayist's own experience, which is very different um, from the, the medical language. Um, you know, I could imagine an essay, something like the except you know, you could have BP's account of the giant oil spill, then you could have a more idiosyncratic, a more personal, Account juxtaposed with it, or something like that. Um, this is another example. This is from Susan Griffin's Women in Nature. It's sort of an icon of feminist writing. Um, it's Women in Nature, The Roaring Inside Her, in which she posited, it was her first nonfiction book. She had just moved from poetry uh, to write nonfiction for the first time, and uh, she posited that our society. This was a long time ago, I guess, in the late 70s. She posited that our society treated women and nature the same way as things that had to be managed. And here, I've I've added the purple so you can see the juxtaposition. She's juxtaposing uh, historic facts uh, from, you know, this from the Inquisition and so on, this period, with um, her sort of commentary on them. And, and her commentary is about Joan of Arc's trial, of course. Um, this is a quote from Art Spiegelman. If you know Art Spiegelman, who wrote Mouse, I thought this was interesting. He was one of the few people I found who was talking about juxtaposition um, and he said, what is most interesting about comics for me has to do with the abstraction and structurings that come from <laughs> the comics page, the fact that moments in time are juxtaposed in a story that is trying to make chronological and coherent the incomprehensible, the juxtaposing of past and present insists that past and present are always present. One doesn't displace the other the way it happens in film." Um, I thought that was interesting because film also uses juxtaposition so much and you go back and forth so easily in film so I was surprised that he chose that as the contrast although usually of course only one scene fills the screen at the time whereas if you think of Mouse and his page um, I should really have an image of that but um, he, he's juxtaposing his parents' experiences in the Holocaust with his experience of his parents now and you see them as these elderly, uh, needy people, and I think, of course, he's trying to show that you know the past never goes away. The past is is living on in them, and and the past and the present really are not that separate, are not different spheres. Um, so I thought that was interesting that he talked about that. Um, okay, so if you have any questions. Um, that's actually the end of my talk, but I wanted to leave a lot of time um, for, for conversation. And so if you have any questions about this, about juxtaposition, or really anything about um, writing nonfiction, I'll be glad to answer them. Yeah? Do you, have,
0: do you ever ask students to read something to then just, just um, juxtapose with, like some sort of informational text
1: Huh? I don't because I don't deal with content in my writing classes. I deal with craft. She was asking, do I ever give them the informational text? And then they could juxtapose that. But, you know, if you were teaching a different kind of class, like a writing intensive class that, that has a content element, I would think that would work really well. Um, but, no, I don't do that because I don't, I don't usually give out content. I give out these kind of templates, and the students have to fill up with their own content. Um, yeah, yeah.
0: If Mr. McPhee's uh, Marvin Gardens is not your favorite, what is your favorite?
1: I don't know, I, I don't, you know, I, I, most of the juxtaposition essays I read are written by my students, frankly, at the University of Illinois. So I, I don't find that many. The more I think about juxtaposition, the more I see it used, it's used constantly in books and essays. But to see people who take it and center a whole essay around it, that's a kind of extreme use of it, that's kind of on one end. And I actually don't see that that often. So that's why I don't have very many examples of that. I do see all the time in books, in essays, where people are using it a little bit, you know, like the two examples I gave you. I think you see that constantly once you start looking for it. Um, and that's why it's important to be aware of it so that you can use it. Um, whether you center a whole essay around the idea of juxtaposition or not, most people don't, frankly. But I still think it's a great thing to try. I think it's a great assignment. Yeah, what else? Yeah?
0: John uh, McKee wrote
1: uh, an essay about a person that his mother bought him. I know that one, yeah. about his mother's temperament and how um, he was treated by her when he was in college, and then he goes back to talk about this beautiful moment
0: where they go to the airport. Yes. buys him this parachute.
1: Yeah. You know, it's been a long time since I've read that. I can't remember. Does he start with the airport? Do you remember? It may start. Does it start with the airport Wait, and then, and then go? about this gruff character. Yeah. This okay. Tough Woman, his right August and
0: that
1: yeah, year. yeah. That's a lovely essay. And um, again, there is more to the whole than there is to the parts because without, you know, having to backtrack, having to recant, having to talk about the complexity of his relationship, just by just juxtaposing those moments, <laughs> well, he's called, saying a lot. Read it and reread it and read it. I mean, each time you read it, you discover. Hmm. So. Mm-hmm. You know, it's that, it's contrasting. And, you know, if you read those, I don't know if anybody's read those pieces he's published lately in the New Yorker about form and structure. He's obviously obsessed with form and structure. Um, and thinks about it, you know. Very similarly, when I showed you the little A B A B A B, he's got like A B C D and D E F, and you know, he thinks about it like that. And he sets out to write essays. He creates structures for himself and sets out to write essays using them. So, I think that's really interesting. Um, it's really complex, and yeah. Do you like when people
0: ask questions or make comments
1: summarizing them? Okay. I'm sorry. So she was talking about that wonderful John McPhee essay. If you haven't read it, I don't know the title. Is it The Parachute, do you think? It's about his mother, and it centers around this image of one of those parachute toys that you throw up, and it floats down with a little figure. It's a lovely, lovely essay. So that's what she was saying, and she was adding to the conversation that it uses juxtaposition to, to make more complex the character of the mother. Um, yeah.
0: When I did the exercise that you had us do, the things that I knew about were the things that I wanted to tell stories about, and the stories that I wanted to tell were about the things that I wanted to So I didn't get any juxtaposition. Do you have any suggestions?
1: I do. <laughs> I do. I would say, first of all, you're in good shape. You know what you want to write about. <laughs> You've got, you know, a sense of what your story is. So I would say, actually, you're in a good position. And then you have to now tease it apart, maybe. In your mind, it's all one. So you have to now look at the stories and ask yourself, is there something in here that's more external, that needs explanation, that could be explained? Is there a more external part and a more internal part? It's the internal part, I think. Oh, really? Okay, because usually when we say I thought of, I list stories, usually that's more. I'm
0: an historian, so I'm. You know, it's, most of my writing is expository. Uh huh. But I'm trying to get the. I would like to juxtapose it with something that was more, say,
1: experiential. Uh huh. Well, do you ever go to the places that you write about? What are you a historian of? Of what period and what place?
0: Yeah, then the thing I'm writing now is it's about the environmental history of Phoenix and uh-huh. it's about it's about my uh, and then and then I
1: was in Phoenix, I lived in Phoenix for a while so I didn't have that uh-huh. So that's something people often do. Um, then of course you'd have to ask yourself, does that really contribute? You know, do that's you... A, that's right and maybe you know it would end up just being an exercise rather than something you would really want to publish but I still think it would develop your skill as a writer um, even if it doesn't come out to be a finished essay that you feel great about I still think it will develop your skill as a writer and your awareness of that quality of juxtaposition and just how very important it is because you're also I'm sure as a historian I love history and I read a lot of history um You know, you've got to juxtapose other components. You've got to juxtapose description with facts. You've got to juxtapose the long view with the close-up view. I mean, there are constant juxtapositions that are happening when you put together a piece in order to keep your reader interested, um, in order to cover the, the complexity of the subject. So I think that when you write this kind of complex nonfiction, you're actually dealing a lot with juxtaposition. Um, You know, the things you might juxtapose, it could be anything. It also creates a really nice structure for the piece. One thing that's really hard for writers sometimes is coming up with structure, and structure is so helpful. And I really admire those writers. I mean, they almost seem like tricksters to me, like they've got their bag of gimmicks, who so easily come up with these ways to package their writing and make it kind of have a beginning, a middle, an end, and a form, and it can seem almost gimmicky, but it also makes life it makes life a lot easier. It gives a you know your nonfiction a shape, and that's what the reader can really respond to. So you know, if you think about Phoenix, you might just start making lists of things that have struck you about Phoenix. Um, you know. I could see if someone was writing about like trash in Phoenix or something. They might have a list of the objects that turn up most frequently, you know, plastic bottles and then a little piece about something else, you know, or street corners. What are the most important street corners there? And you could use those to create a structure. So you're you're coming up with something that the reader it's got maybe like 4 or 5 parts to it. The external part, and then the other part is a narrative, and it creates a structure. Does that make sense to you guys? Am I? Okay. I think it's very doable. I think you're on the road. You just got to keep thinking about it. It's going to come to you like, you know, as you're falling asleep tonight or something. <laughs> yeah, see. Well, if you think of, like, Annie Prue's novel... She said, what are some examples of the gimmicks I'm talking about? And gimmicks sounds very pejorative, and I don't mean to make it sound pejorative. It's more like, you know... The packaging can be very beautiful, and it can add meaning, and it can be thoughtful, but it is a way to package it. Like, if you look at Annie Prue's novel, what's the title of her novel where she has the not... Shipping news. Shipping news. Has the not... And how to tie that knot at the beginning of each chapter, that's very similar to the essay that I'm talking about. And how to tie that knot has a metaphorical meaning. So gimmick sounds too, but it's a kind of packaging. It's a kind of shaping. It's kind of a wrapping it for the reader. So that, okay, here I am. It's starting again the story. First, I'm going to read about this knot. That's going to give me some insights of what's to come. And now I'm going to start the story. Oh it's happening again. Oh it's happening again. We know where we are and we like that. We're not just lost in this, you know, thing of words, trail of words. It's a marker for us. Yeah. Yeah. into something that's more... Well, I think like the Peter Hustler example is just something that you're using maybe once or twice in an essay. I think everybody's doing that all the time, where he's juxtaposing um, the story of this remarkable pharmacist who plays all these roles in this very rural, remote community. And then he juxtaposes in with that the history of this community and how it's part of one of these utopian socialistic communities that I had no idea were actually apparently quite common in the western US um, in that settlement period. And so on the one hand I didn't know I wanted to know about utopian communities in the western US, but when I come to it in the course of that narrative, that little nugget of information one thing that you find when you write complex nonfiction, you cannot take a big chunk of information and dump it on your Your reader, you know, your readers, readers, we're readers. We know about readers. Readers are difficult, you know, from the word go. They're cantankerous. They're rebellious. They are skeptical. They have short attention spans. I mean, readers are terrible, and we are readers, and we are terrible. So you just cannot give them a big chunk of information. You have to, you know, seduce them along with little, you know, like my son has a puppy in the house with a cussle and give him a puppy treats. You're him to, to do everything. You're going to do that with your reader. You're going know, to get all those little treats. <laughs> and of course, what is the treat that the reader wants? The reader wants an emotional story, a narrative that they can follow, that what, where they're thinking what's going to happen next, and they're interested. So you've got to cut up all that information if you write complex nonfiction into little bitty chunks. And, um, you know, just like working the butter into the croissant dough, you've got to cut it up and put in little bits all the way through. And that's where juxtaposition, you know, is really key. Um, so if you're writing a complex piece, you know, you might be, you might be a character in the piece. So you might be juxtaposing your own experiences. If you're a visible narrator, you might be juxtaposing description, what it looks like, where you are. Um, you might be juxtaposing an emotional story, and you might be juxtaposing, you know, even also paragraphs of insight or something like that, meaning. Um, so you've got to think how to do that. hope that's helpful. OK, yeah? Do you think it helps
0: to be edited? I mean, you've obviously probably submitted a lot of your work for essays, and- when those essays are edited, do the editors find a structure for it or help you along with the structure? Or is it you think it is all the author's kind of domain?
1: Well, the reality these days is that to write and publish, you're talking about publishing here, not just writing, which is a whole different story. Um, you really have to be very self-sufficient to get to the point that something can be published. So how you're self-sufficient, that's your issue, you know, if you can do it on your own or if you have people you trade work with or whatever it is you do. Um, but you can't really uh, give, you can't get something published that needs that much work. It just won't happen. Um, but if you're lucky and editors do edit, I mean, I have a piece that's coming out. It just came out in this month's um, Oxford Americans which is a magazine I just love, and I don't write a lot about the South, but I am from Memphis, and so when I do, I send it to them. And, um, and I wrote it because I was here, I think I read it last year here, because I wrote it because I was here, and I was having lunch with Anjali, and Anjali said, we're going to do an issue on the South, you should write something, and I said, no, I never write about the South, and she said, yeah, you should, and So I sent it to them, but of course it didn't fit into their anthology, Creative Nonfiction. So I sent it to Oscar American, and it's coming out. This it just came out. Um, But um, they—I was just so lucky there. They had a wonderful editor, and she found a much better ending than I struggled and struggled to end the piece. And she found the perfect ending and and really improved the piece. Mostly, what editors do is cut. You know, because mostly we're, we're too caught up with our own words and we go on too long, and editors are very aware of space considerations, and uh, so mostly they cut. Um, I think when I really learned to edit myself was when I did pieces for the radio, and they had to be three minutes. And that's when I really learned to write, I think. Um, so if you're not writing with a maximum word limit, you should start immediately if you're not saying to yourself every time you start writing, this is going to be a 500 word piece, this is going to be an 800 word piece, this is going to be a 1,000 word piece, this is going to be a 1,500 word piece. If you go beyond on that, you're really getting out there in the n- another way, you know, good luck, I hope the New Yorker likes you. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, so, you know, if you're not doing that, then you're really, uh, again, you're, you're making it hard on yourself, because in the real world, pieces have word limits, and this is, how, this is you know, how you learn to write by taking your 3,000-word piece and you know, making it a 1,500-word piece, which is what we have to do in the real world. And it isn't easy. It isn't easy. I'm editing my mother's memoir. My mother's turning 90 this summer. She gave me 30,000 words. I edited them down to 12,000 words, at which point I was exhausted and burnt out. So I sent it off. Oxford American wanted to publish it it's about Memphis in the 40s so I sent it to them and said not sure which parts of this you're interested in I'm kind of at the end of my rope here at the moment need a break and they edited it down to 3,000 words from 12,000 some really extreme editing that writers probably would not have thought was possible once I saw what parts they were interested in I went back and re-edited it so I felt a little more comfortable um, with it but um, you know they had a space for 3,000 words and they wanted the piece in that space and it couldn't be more than 3,000 words so um, you know that's, that's some recent experiences I've had with editing um, anything else? yeah a yeah. Or a whole biography that uses juxtaposition extensively, or even a part of it? I'd be intrigued to read it. I mean, I'd love to read it too. I think it sounds really interesting.
0: It could be very cool, but I didn't know if anyone had even
1: done something like that. I don't know one. I wish I knew one to tell you. You know, I have a piece I wrote, which nobody will publish. Um, <laughs> About this 19th century French guy, and I tried to juxtapose it with walking through Paris um, on this line which he helped to survey. But you know, as I said, I was going to come out in this new travel magazine, which was going to be about the history of places, which I think a lot of people care about. I think it was a great idea, but it folded before the first issue. So, guy, <laughs> I, I don't know. Somebody had the money to, to launch this thing and. and it, it didn't work out, so I'm stuck with this long piece that um, it's kind of like what you're saying a little bit. Can you just repeat her question, real quick? She said, "Could you write a biography and use juxtaposition to go back and forth?" And have I ever read one? And I, I think it sounds really interesting. I would love to read one. But other than that piece of mine that I've been struggling with, I can't think of one oh,
0: Yeah, I think I can. Yeah, I think great. Robin Robin Hamley's. Memoir of his sister, which is called Nola. Yes. Yes. Uses juxtaposition
1: throughout. It's yeah. Her letters, her art. Um, it uses really it's structured almost entirely on um, the ju- juxtaposition of his memories, um, a history of his
0: family, yes. and the decline of uh, her 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 mental illness, which is mapped. You know, in, in in some ways, in her own voice and with her own art, with her with letters and memoirs and stuff that run in this parallel right. narrative, um, narrative to his. I
1: yeah, that's, that's a great example. It's been so many years since I read that. I read it when it came out, but it's a beautiful, powerful book. And um, it's a very weird book. It I is, think, and I think it's weird because it because it does that all the way through. And you think. Is this a memoir? Is this a what is this? And yeah. it's its own thing. Yeah, because he, she's long gone, and he's commenting on that, and the story's unraveling. That yeah, it's complicated. He does that a little bit with the one about anthropology too. I, I, I it's been again so long since I've read it that I couldn't speak about it very articulately, but I believe he does juxtapose that conflict between the anthropologists and various other things. Robin Timley, H-E-M-L-E-Y, yeah. I worked with dying patients and I wrote
0: about it, juxtaposing it with picking blackberries um, and dealing with the element of who picks the timing of our death, God
1: or yeah. the Yeah, there you go, yeah. So what it's like to pick blackberries, which you obviously knew a lot about and could describe with a kind of precision and clarity, And then this other thing that you knew about that was more emotional and maybe is easier for the reader when it's broken up too, perhaps, because we get to step back during those blackberry um, sections. One of my students had a lovely juxtaposition this semester where she is an Illinois farm girl and she described she and her little cousin going to feed the cows and how you have to walk up to them so carefully and not spook them and kind of approach them carefully. And then there was a space and there was a story about a little cousin, a little boy, telling about something that had very traumatically happened to him, something very traumatic. So he's kind of afraid to tell her. He keeps bringing it up and she keeps saying it's okay. You can tell me and or it's, it's up to you. But she keeps trying to reassure him. And you see that echo of the way they're, at the same time that they're having this conversation, they're trying to walk up to the cows without, And I just thought it was very beautiful, the emotional. Um, And it sounds like, like what you did. Yeah, I think it's a great
0: idea. Yeah. One of the best biographical examples of juxtaposition I've ever found is a big, thick book called Spandau, The Secret Diaries. It was written by Albert Speer, who was a Nazi war criminal tried at Nuremberg. And then he kept a diary as he was serving his prison sentence. And he talked about his current experiences in prison. And then he would flash back to his days working with Hitler and the other Nazis. And then he would flash forward into the future. What am I going to do when I get out? And then he also talks about his dreams, which combine all three of those elements. Interesting. So instead of having two things, he's juxtaposing three or four. Right. Yeah, which is often the case. Yeah, thanks for that example. It sounds a little scary to read, but <laughs> anyway. All right, Rachel. Thanks. These are giving you know, me a lot of great ideas. And and it seems like a lot of the juxtaposition is metaphorical or perhaps historical in some nature. I wondered if you could comment on how, um, on a more language level, do you recommend or dissuade us from using similar verbs or adjectives in these two juxtapositions? Or should we, if we see that, should we like, avoid doing that?
1: Mm. That's a really interesting question. Did you hear her? She's talking about language. Should the language be the same in the two, or should it be different? Obviously, if it's very different, like a doctor's medical report juxtaposed with a patient's experience, that difference in language is part of the power. And they're just kind of like banging against each other with a claim because they're so different. Um, on the other hand, of course, the way that we do create unity in literature is by having things mirror and bounce off and reflect and and connect. And that, using the same verbs in in the two different sections would do that. So all I can say is every strategy that you pick has its advantages and disadvantages. You know, you have to kind of weigh them. And given the content, because ideally we want the form to mirror the content in some way. It always does in the best part. then, and that's why, once you get the subject, you'll realize that you know the juxtaposition essay is the perfect form for it. Once you get the right subject for you, and you realize that there is a way in which it bangs up, the two things bang up against each other, but also you know connect, kind of like John McPhee and his mother, <laughs> or something like that, um, then you're going to see, yes, this will work. This will be a juxtaposition essay. So once you get that, I think the right subject is going to fall into place for you. And I really hope you do it. Of course, you have plenty of time. You can do it this week. You can do it when you get home. You can do it this year. I have one I've been working on for a couple of years. It just isn't coming together, but I keep working on it. Maybe as soon it will. Um, and um, so anyway, I hope you enjoy writing the juxtaposition essay. Take the juxtaposition challenge from you and Good luck.